Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Jazam! Hello, custom manufacturing fanatic. Your host of the Job Shop Show, Jay Jacobs here with another fantastic conversation. Today with a female shop owner who has lived through several crises in her plastics fabrication shop. Ellen Petrowitz is the president of LEM Plastics in Fairfield, New Jersey, which is just outside of New York City. They are both a plastics-focused manufacturer as well as a plastics material distributor, but have been shifting the business more and more to the make side. Hopefully we will get into some of the inside secrets of the material supply side of the business later on in the show. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Ellen. Hey, thank you for having me. I was looking at your LinkedIn profile in preparation for the show, and you have a degree in fine art. Manufacturing can be an art, as we all know, but probably not the type you learned in school. So what type of art inspires you, and how did it shape how you approach business now? Um, It's funny. I have a a degree, yes, in in, uh, drawing and art history, and um, uh, I may not be in my field, but I make something every day. So as long as I can yes. get my hands on making something, I kind of feel like I'm, uh, I've got a little bit of my art field going. And the cool thing about plastics is um, we call it more of an art than a science when you're machining because plastic has a mind of its own and it goes everywhere. So my guys are in a way artisans and I relate to that really well. Plus coming into this business, um, my eye keeps keeps me in that simple mode keeping the simple solution so when i'm dealing with engineers who are over designing something um, mm. i bring it back 
Um, so the art has really been uh, an interesting starting point, but it gave me a lot of not afraid to stick my hands in something and get them dirty. Yeah. I like the simple solution point of view. If I was working at your company and in a meeting with you, are you likely just to go to the whiteboard and start sketching out or essentially putting information visually in front of people? Absolutely. I am a very big visual person. Um, I like to see everything that way. And I think that everyone else I learned along the way does not always see everything that way and sometimes gets insulted by my, my, my pictures or my thought that, that I'm making it easier for them. Um, but yeah, I love, I love to draw things out. I still like paper and, and pencils and the whiteboard is my favorite thing. I write notes constantly or draw pictures constantly. I think it's an easier way of expressing myself. That's a great way though to complement the traditional way that we in business communicate because it's typically text or a audio. So having a visual way, a third way to communicate, some people just can't read and comprehend or for myself, if I don't necessarily necessarily process information when I receive it verbally that well. So uh, I like to get it written. And if I had visual graphical pictures, that as you said, that makes it simple. You can, with a picture, what do they say? A picture's worth a thousand, a thousand words. words. Yeah, a thousand words. But you know what? I think it, it helps me keep everything to 20 words so that I'm not tripping over my words. I, uh, yeah, I think the pictures help. Excellent. Mm -hmm. We are talking in late March, 2020. What's going on in your business? You are in New Jersey. Are you and your team working? Are you closed? We are working. We're considered essential. One of the smartest tools that um, my father ever taught me in business was to make sure that your, your hat isn't in just one industry, that you're spread over. So we're spread over at least six different prominent industries. Um, and that's uh, got us as an essential part of supply chain, essential part of defense, essential part of medical right now. And um, um, my guys are actually carrying around maybe 13 or so letters from all of these companies saying they are essential, they must be in work. So if for any reason they got stopped or were asked where they were going, um, they need to be here. We're, Has uh, anyone we're, been so stopped? Very busy. Not yet, but we actually started that practice um, way back in, um, I want to say, it might have been the Desert Storm days, or it might have been after 9-11, mm. we, we've had these letters, you know, and, and requested them from companies. So about three weeks ago, I started out on my journey with, hey, guys, um, there's rumors coming down the mill. Tell us, you know, where you are and what's going to happen and how essential you're going to be so I know if I am. Do you give the companies a template to make it easier for them, or do they already have a letter that they can just pull out and put your company name on or the person's name on? They actually do both. They have a template um, that they will supply us uh, before it goes official with their legal department. And then we can, um, we can borrow it and use it and then upgrade it when we get the, the final draft from them. So I've always, I keep this template around, which basically um, just fits the situation. We just change the wordings for that. I'm going to ask if you might be able to take out any confidential information, but 
send me by email a copy of that letter if I could post it on LinkedIn to help other job shop owners who aren't large and don't have the resources in the bureaucracy of perhaps a defense contractor is not making it easy to get a letter that I know if you can give someone something a lot of times that makes it a lot smoother than having to ask them to create it from scratch oh absolutely um I'll I'll get it right over to you because the biggest thing is is that um, we use subcontractors, we use smaller shops, we use shops mm. that are same size, but uh, if they don't have that direct link and they decide that they need to stay home, that doesn't help me at all. So, yeah. Do they need to have the letter from that for the end customer or from you? Um, well, you know what, it could be a trickle down effect because I'm getting trickle downs from, um, you know, Boeing through everyone that's doing their builds. So mm -hmm. it could very much be a trickle down. They're, they're considered essential. Gotcha. This plays into a theme that I really want to dissect because crises are something that you have lived through many times being on the shore or may, perhaps maybe you're not deliberately on the New Jersey shore anymore, but you've lived through how many hurricanes? Um, three. So we started with Floyd in 97 and then went to um, Irene and then to Sandy. And the funny part about it was in Rutherford, we weren't on the shore. We were, uh, or actually in Wallington was, is when all of this got hit and we moved to Rutherford. Um, Wallington has a infrastructure that's a little challenged for water and we are down at the bottom end of the Passaic River where all the dams open up and go through. So that whole conglomeration did not allow for um, anything but an entirely flooded town. And uh, after 97, after Floyd, um, nobody, they called that the 100 year flood. Nobody expected it to happen again. And then it happened with Irene and then it happened a year to the day later with Sandy. So three floods, 100 year floods in, yeah. what was in, that, uh, in what about 10 years? <laughs> yeah, I think it was like 13 years, yes. Yeah. And then in between that, there was a fire. So, you know, it's all good. We've, we've learned Before, to, to restructure our disaster plan. So if you could give the listener a little overview of LEM Plastics, how you got started and how you came to be the owner and what you folks do, then I'd like to explore that disaster planning and what you've learned. But let's start in, in the beginning just to get a perspective. Okay, um, LEM Plastics was started by Tom Petrowitz, who was my dad, um, back in 74. And he started as a material distributor salesman. So he would um, basically just do what he had been doing before for another company. And he was selling under his own name, which was LEM Plastics, out of our house. And a year later, he was doing so well that he bought a building. And then um, as he realized there were so many other things he could do and he had great contacts who would say to him well what about this can you help me with this i'm having trouble uh -huh. with that and he made so many great friends he the first uh thing that turned us in from a just raw material distribution and cut to size uh with a few saws shop was his acquisition of a small company um the gentleman was uh, dying of cancer and his wife didn't know what to do with the company and so basically my dad went in and bought it um, and he had a lot of tooling for a lot of um, uh, government and um, 
aeronautic uh, companies. And what happened was it was an old job shop. So there was uh -huh. everything, all the tooling was in coffee cans and all the <laughs> extra parts were in these boxes with little labels and the, every coffee can had a brown wrapper around it with a part number on it. So it took us a lot. I mean, I remember being in high school and my summer job would be to take these cans apart and make some kind of organization out of them. But that allowed us to quote companies that probably would never have let us in to see them. Mm. We had their tooling, we owned it. Um, and then once we started producing those parts and learning that, he started buying equipment and then bought a screw machine house. And um, just these tiny little shops that needed, um, that were doing well and had potential and that needed um, someone to nurture them because the, the, the old timers were going out. And that's how he started to build um, our machine division, which uh, really right, takes up about 80, 85% of our, our capacity now. Um, we we went in that direction, knowing the artistry behind machining plastics. It's not as easy as uh, any metals, and any plastic person will tell you that. Um, and the bigger companies, the Sabics, the 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 Syncobains, all of those guys that kept buying the raw material up, um, we couldn't compete with them as distributors. So right now we mm. distribute specialty stuff, we middleman specialty uh, products for our big customers who have locked out their supply. Um, uh, list mm -hmm. and you know they need to, to decrease their supply base so that we take on that middleman portion and that's where our raw materials are coming in now what year did you buy the company i bought the company in 2000 the first hurricanes happened in 97 and were you working at the company then i actually was uh partially working at the company and i owned a restaurant at the time so I was back an even tougher business. Yes. So I was back and forth <laughs> between the two, and um, yeah, and then uh, the hurricane was putting my Tom was my dad was putting him over the top in terms of uh, stress levels and health. And what so, happened? So what happened when the hurricane hit? Did the shop was it underwater? The shop was under. Um, outside there was about six feet of water outside and on the inside um, there had been a line of about 38 inches almost yeah a little over three feet so everything that um, wasn't nailed down had been the water was such a huge force had been uh, flushed through the building Nice. And then um, on its way out, its exit way, it took everything that was on desk height or, um, or below, because a lot of shelves are below that, that line, and just um, flushed it all to the front of the building. The doors had to be like, bombard, like pushed open um, because everything was bombarded behind the door. I mean, there were parts in toilet bowls, the things that flushed and washed themselves down the, the stream into the bathrooms. And, and nice. it, was, it was a disaster. We had fish, we had snakes from the river. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And within three days, if you pulled the paneling or you pulled something from behind the wall, there was like a green fur coat of mold growing. So the entire building had to be stripped. When, so that is obviously a disaster. That's a disaster. How did you recover? Um, what, how did you start recovering? What were the, the steps? Were you overwhelmed or you just said, no, we're just going to do what we can today a little at a time? 
we were lucky all of these things happen in September and the weather's beautiful. Um, we were also lucky we had a very large parking lot that we could just bring things out to and empty out. Um, the connections are good. Our, um, our suppliers were good to us and so were, um, so were our friends who have owned other machine shops. We were very lucky to be able to subcontract a lot of the work out, um, save some of the work, send machinists, and this happened in, in, in Irene even more than Floyd, um, is we were able to, to send our machinists out to other people's buildings. They allowed us to use their uh, equipment. Wow. Yeah or they took on the jobs as a subcontractor to get us going. Uh, Floyd was not as bad. We were able to get in there. We had a, a bigger team at that time, um, stripped everything out that we could strip out um, and dumpstered it and cleaned. And everybody was younger then and, and much more willing to do a lot of the hard work. But we hired a lot, got a lot out, had all the machines replaced and had a little more cash flow at that time. So it was easier to flip things. Did you, what are the machining centers and other power equipment to make parts were those totally destroyed most of the motors had to be pulled and all revamped besides the machines being cleaned out but most of the motors had to be pulled and sent out to be totally realigned um, how long did that take it wasn't it wasn't horrible i want to say we were back and putting um we were shipping and back in business within probably five weeks or so. Um, yeah, in five or six weeks, we were able to pull everything out and put it all back together. I mean, it took another five months to get us back on our schedule and and, mm -hmm. and really fulfilling what um, the potential that we had and filling up all that space. But we were originally right back in. Um, you mentioned the cash flow was stronger. What if you don't mind me asking, was the, let's say, a month's sales roughly, did you have a, a month's sales in cash or more on hand or, or AR that was coming in that was allowed you to do this? Because just completely shutting down, obviously you, you said you brought other shops into the picture and your some of your team members were able to work there, but you're invoicing had to have dramatically decreased uh, between week zero and week five, six. How, what sort of cash did you have on hand in terms of revenues or monthly revenues or whatever to sustain and, and make sure you didn't go out of business? Yeah, well, see, I didn't own the business at that time. And luckily, um, we had just come out of the 80s, which was a really nice high period for everybody. Mm -hmm. So um, the owner had... Um, had a CD put aside um, of, I he probably, I, I can't even remember. I want to say it was probably about $160,000 was sitting there and just waiting. So anything could be borrowed off at lines of credit. They didn't, they were old timers. They didn't believe in lines of credit. They didn't believe in loans if they didn't have to. So they mm -hmm. literally would, would hawk some cash away. Um, at that time, there was no insurance policy to cover any of this because we were- You didn't have insurance. Plane. Oh no, there was no floodplain. So uh -huh. there was no reason to have flood insurance. <laughs> so so that's- flood? The area doesn't let, flood. Let, let's say that again, because there you weren't in a floodplain, it right. didn't make sense to have flood insurance, right, but obviously no, you yeah. still got flooded. So 
that is something flood insurance, particularly if you are not in a floodplain, is relatively inexpensive. And you will probably talk about some of the disaster planning that you have in place now, but that's an ingredient perhaps another shop might want to think about. It's funny, um, at, the, at the time of a disaster, especially that first one, you're, you're a rookie at all this. Right. And the news crews show up and they want to talk to you and you're, you're tired, you're overwhelmed, you have no plan, you're not quite sure um, how, how you're, which way you're going to go and how things are going to turn around. And you're balancing your emotions, but you're also balancing that of all your employees and mm-hmm. all of the birds that are whispering in their ears, hence their kids who want whatever is new on the, on the, the market or their lives or whatever, how are we going to do it? So mm-hmm. you're balancing everybody's emotions. So the news crews show up and then you talk to them and you make it sound horrible. And you're thinking, oh my God, and there's got to be some kind of female relief. There's got to be something, but we got to make it sound pretty bad. And plus, you're not quite sure that you're, you're even doing that or you're not doing that. You're not, you're not sure at any moment about anything. And mm-hmm. the minute you get put on um, one of the news channels, all of a sudden the phone starts ringing and your customers start panicking. And then you realize, yeah, that is not the way ah. to sustain your business, your reputation or anything else. So we have learned that when we get into a disaster or go out of a disaster, everything is fine. Everything is rosy. I'm the guy standing there like an animal house going, remain calm. It's all good as everyone's <laughs> running over me, but we're still, we still uh, hold that position because our job, not only as suppliers um, for that, that chain is also to calm that purchasing agent down and let them know that uh, we understand how important everything is. And if we're in a panic mode, we're just going to increase that down the line and we're going to lose the confidence that we've built and the relationships that we built all over those years. So no matter how bad it is, it's rosy <laughs> as can be. Everything's great. And yeah, everything's great. And we're going to come out of this just fine. There's a few glitches. And one of the biggest lessons we've learned from the first one and then um, the second, uh, the, there was a fire in between that. And then the second hurricane um, was honesty is an incredible tool honesty with the people you owe money to uh-huh. um, and honesty with uh, your customers. We, hmm. You know, um, going into it with no excuses, no, the check was lost in the mail or the material hasn't gotten here or whatever. Here's the plan. As long as you have a plan, as long as we were able to um, give a scenario, um, uh-huh. we could tweak that scenario with their input. But as long as we could uh, present a scenario and say, we understand what's priority, give us, don't cry wolf, but let us know exactly what's the most important thing. And we will make that happen. And then making it happen. You have to go, you, you, if you're going to give your word, you, you've got mm-hmm. to follow it up. But we found that, you know, coming straight at people um, with the honest truth was, uh, was really helpful. And they, they respected it and then um, helped us get through it. Um, other cu- the customers were like, okay, we understand we can't give you a bunch of work right now, um, but tell me what we can give you and tell me when you're ready for us again, uh-huh. kind of idea. So they knew they knew uh, not to let us fail, and we didn't want to. So we, we were able to with each um, with each disaster get smarter, better, faster at how our recovery worked. But that was the that was the tri- the, the the true that 
the truth that ran through everything was um, having a having an offering and then being able to tweak and move around it. And and sometimes you had to say no. You literally had to say we want mm. that job, but we're just we're going to fail. So you know, please give us another opportunity that, after. That's true, though. Anytime you should never. It's true, but that's never not say, the way business is always done. Right. Right. A fire was that what happened next? The next disaster. Yeah, we had the next disaster was um, we had a fire with public service. Um, the transformer we had we had a with I think it was the double transformer and we were the last um, stop on that central mm -hmm. current line and um, I guess something around the area or town or whatever um, blew up or whatever it was and the surge came through and our transformer did not shut down which means it shot the surge through the sidewall of our building and up the roof and the problem oh. was that I mean our fire department volunteer fire department was amazing they were able to go uh go in down through the roof and and constantly attack the fire that was coming through the electrical meter so they couldn't use water um mm -hmm. and they had to wait they, it was like it was almost an hour before public service could get there to shut the transformer up so they battled for a while wow and again we lucked out because the weather was halfway decent and although we didn't have eh, probably um a third of our roof and on one front wall um, we were able, we were able to uh, we were able to you know take that back and and fix it up and move on. So we walked around with a black roof for a while and had everything cleaned up and painted and put back together. And our insurance covered that one, which was a big help mm -hmm. going through. Yeah. Before and then we were before Hurricane Irene, did you move buildings? No. Had you relocated? We thought about it. Um, I had bought the business by then, and um, it was it was a thought. But it was the rent was good. The the everything everybody was comfortable. The staff was all comfortable. So it wasn't. Um, I was commuting fifty some odd miles to nope. my office, and uh, so it wasn't um, it wasn't in the cards at that moment. Mm-hmm. When Irene hit then, how were you prepared differently? Did you have a disaster plan or relief plan? I, what, do you, what do you call this sort of plan? You know, now they call it a disaster plan, uh, but um, then we didn't know we, after the first one, we didn't know we needed a disaster plan. Um, because again, 100 year flood, it's never supposed to happen. So when mm -hmm. Irene hit, we heard the rumblings and we um, got smart on some of the uh, some of the machines that had lower motors and things like that. We took them off. We raised up all the computers. We put mm. everything above desk height. Unfortunately, um, that was so severe that we had almost eight feet outside the building. Um, the sandbags that we bagged up the doors with, half, some of them were stolen. Um, the water was so violent that it broke the 18-foot garage door, um, and the water just came in. The whole door was taken off, uh, mm. well, on one side um, from the pressure. So we got at least four and a half feet inside the building, and um, whatever we tried to save um, was uh, not as successful as we would have liked. Mm. So, but when you go into it, we've seen it before, so it wasn't... It wasn't as scary, but I have to tell you, I've done both fire and flood, 
and I almost preferred fire because you sweep it up, you put it in the garbage, and you get rid of it. When it's flooded, it's still visible. You can still see the print, you can still see the photos, you can still see the drawers, you can still open things up and identify what they are, wet or not. And you make different decisions that way. Hmm. Um, you think you should save it. You think you should scan it. You should, should get it dried out. You know you need to get most of the stuff you're going to keep dried out and, and, and uh, free of all the contaminants. But um, you make a different decision. And I think that tied us up a little bit with what was important and what wasn't. Which records do we need to keep? Which ones don't we? So um, I think I'd prefer the other way. Whereas it's gone, it's gone. Did you have copies of everything's computerized now? So the computer files, backups, offsite. How are you? How did you treat your computer systems then, and how are you treating them now? Well, we were an old-time shop. We did have all of our programs for whatever machines um, on backup. Mm -hmm. um, we had just in two thousand, uh, I think nineteen ninety we had just stopped started with job boss uh -huh. and we were small enough that uh, we had a very very small mainframe we didn't have a bunch of firewalls there wasn't all of this worry about hacking and uh -huh. having other people's drawings so we had computer wise we were um, we were covered because all of our uh, but we didn't have a lot of things scanned yet we still had a lot of paper copies in uh -huh. terms of the jobs or um, uh, traceability on materials uh -huh. because we have to keep a, an infinite amount of time of traceability. Um, but the after the um, after Irene, it definitely uh, turned into a mandatory um, process that we included, which was everything being scanned within a certain time period, so that we weren't we weren't sitting on any paper at all. Everything uh -huh. went electronic and fast. And how do you back that up? Um, we so, so requirement wise for some of our, our customers, we not only have um, a backup here in the building, we have a backup at our IT group and the IT group has another backup, which is at a mm. central location. So um, after Irene, um, or is it after Sandy, either way, after Sandy, we got lucky. Um, our IT group had a conference room and they moved us in the conference room with mm. all uh, with all computers and we were set up within 24 hours to talk to customers and go business as usual of what we could do. You use an outside IT service then? Yes. yes. That's an interesting benefit of working with an outside IT service is, and I don't know if all of them have that capability or not, looking at disaster crisis planning today and the pandemic is certainly different than having something physical in your building but what does your plan consist of it is there a formal document are people trained is it reviewed on a certain frequency we're as 9100 certified so and that's iso nas mm -hmm. and so that puts those um trainings and uh if this then that scenario into place for everything uh -huh. um i'm lucky that i have a team that stayed has been with me and i have one or two people who've been here longer than i have but um who have stayed with the company and they um they they 
have an ownership. So as much as um, you can train for a disaster, you can have things in place, the, the heart has to come with it and the desire to yes. um, want to see the, suc the succession of, of getting out of that disaster. I was really, really lucky with the team that I had. Um, they stood by me. They stood by me when money ran out and um, we were going to have a really hard time because one of the one of the the lessons that I learned not only for my customers, but for myself as a business owner was there's a lot of hard decisions you don't want to make. There's a lot of hard conversations you don't want to have and you keep thinking that if you don't have them, they're not there. So uh, laying people off not being able to support people um, in terms of, you know, shutting down that 401k or mm. uh, what you could do to save the business. You're always thinking about saving everyone else. So you take that, well, I'll take a pay cut. I won't mm. get myself paid. I'll make sure everything else happens. There's a lot of um, that you can read in a book and someone can give you that, that how to do it the right way. But until you get through the emotional part, of what kind of owner or business person you want to be um, until you actually live through it or, or, or entangle yourself away from it or um, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And I did. I, um, I laid out um, and kept people on who were working by cleaning a building or working by retooling machines or um, you know, tearing down walls or cleaning things up, but we weren't shipping anything. We were, we were minimally shipping and we weren't even covering. And I went through a lot of the savings and a lot of um, personal savings to just to do that because I was so busy looking at the small picture. I didn't see the big one. Uh -huh. um, so th these disasters and, and putting a plan together, um, the first and, and smartest thing I can say to anybody is, is, from my mistake was not having um, that CFO person or that good dollar person uh. really, really forecasting the plan. Here's how much you've got. Here's how much you need a day. This is where you're, um, where you're going to break. Here's your date and, and how are you going to get to that and what are you going to do to make that, that number look good? Um, so that was a hard lesson to learn and it was an expensive lesson to learn and it was mortgage on houses lesson to learn and, and, and um, employees not getting paid for a couple of weeks lessons mm. to learn. And they were great. They stayed in there and we've gotten them paid back. It took a long time to pull that all together, but uh, you mess up your credit. You mess up, um, you mess up as you're always keeping that reputation with your customers and your suppliers, but you're messing up, your, your banking or you're messing up your ability to uh, grow the business later on or build. And you've really got to remember that that comes back, but it comes back really slowly. So um, having a good financial plan in place, or at least there are so many business owners I know that don't even know what their daily number needs to be in order to stay in business. I mean, and, and, and that's fine, but then have somebody who does know that have somebody who um, can How do you advise do you on that. How do you do it now? Do you have huh. a spreadsheet? Do you have an outside advisor or a CFO type person in the company? I've got a couple things. Um, I still do not have a CFO because I've found that I still cannot financially um, afford that CFO sitting on, mm -hmm. just sitting yeah. and advising. So I use my accountant 
But what I used more than anything are the groups that I had joined, the business groups that I put myself together with. Um, so EO is one of them. I know you're familiar with them. And yes. I sit with my forum and we learn, we lay things out. Um, Before we get into that, can you tell people EO is Entrepreneurs Organization and then you also are involved in WPO? Women's President's Organization, correct. So could you just share what they are as organizations, why you join them and what a forum is, the essentials before we talk about how they help you now? Sure. Um, so the first group I joined was WPL Women's President's Organization. Um, for obvious reasons, I was a woman president. I was in an industry with mostly men. I needed somebody to understand what I was doing. My friends and family didn't quite get what the um, ownership of a business looked like. It's, you know, mm -hmm. it's all jolly and your own boss and you get to do everything you have no responsibility and it's fun you get to do anything you want so yeah that doesn't work um so i needed i needed a a place to come out of when we were in the middle of um when i bought the business and it was coming out of a disaster i also had a partner who was 45 percent owner who i had to um get on board with the loaning and everything else and he was an angry partner who Re thought his 45% was worth a lot more than it was, was mm -hmm. not willing to sell at the um, agreed upon price, was not willing to sell at the market price, was not willing to do anything but um, be a thorn in the business's side. So when we finally did work through all of that, I had no one in the business to talk to. So uh, um, I needed to find that space. WPO helped me and started and going back to the financial, they afforded me um, the ability to go to Tuck, which is Dartmouth's business school, mm. and literally learn all of the business stuff that I didn't learn being an art major, um, and reading a P&L, and knowing mm -hmm. where these numbers are important and why, and not just you know um, how sales and getting a product out the door and happy employees is... is uh, the way a business runs. There are a few more components that I wasn't quite as uh, acutely aware of, you know, and, and mm -hmm. a disaster brings those to the forefront. So WPO um, is a woman's president's organization where um, they do a monthly meeting and you were able to present um, and learn and grow. Um, I found that they were really helpful and I enjoyed being there, um, but I was also looking for the testosterone in my, because I'm in manufacturing. Uh -huh. And there are a lot of service businesses out there and it wasn't quite um, the, the nut that I needed. So EO is an entrepreneurial organization and we're a chapter in New Jersey. They have 63 countries um, uh -huh. where there are locations and I believe it's like 197 different chapters. So every state has one. Um, some have a couple, New Jersey. Um, I mean, New York has about three different chapters. But here in New Jersey, we have a 120-plus um, member group, and uh, we sit in a monthly forum. Those forums are comprised of between six and eight, nine, ten people. And you do a monthly meeting where they're your board of directors. Um, all different businesses, all different personalities, all different philosophies, and it is your safe space to drop 
your wins, your losses, your questions, your theories, your ideas all on a table and have people of, of a like-minded um, sector tear them apart or build them up, help you see what it is you're not seeing for yourself, help you do that extra due diligence that you don't seem to have the time as a business owner, in my case, as a mother, as a, as a wife, mm -hmm. as a business owner. Um, and they give you um, the needs and the leads that you're looking for. And, and we share contacts, we share information, we share experience. It's called gestalt. Um, instead of telling someone what to do, we share an experience of what it looked like when we were in a similar situation. And it tends to um, allow people to be more vulnerable. It allows them to be more open. It allows them to hear and be able to react on, on the shared information. So that group had helped. That group is the one that I found right after um, Hurricane Sandy. And I was um, really close to chapter 11 at the time and, mm. and wanted, to, wanted to give it that last um, hit knowing that I could really, I didn't have all the proper tools and now that I was gonna have the tools, I was gonna be able to take this where I needed to go. You joined EO right around when Hurricane Sandy or you had started with it beforehand? It was after Hurricane Sandy and you don't join EO because I'll get slapped if I ever let anybody hear that, you are invited to be a yes. member of EO. So you get yes. interviewed and you're invited to be a member. But um, yes, I, um, I was invited after that. And during this pandemic and the things that are happening, um, EO has been a almost um, overly noisy um, mm -hmm. word in my ear because we've everyone has um, the ability to, to tackle some problem that's coming up. And we've been, if you looked at LinkedIn, obviously I put a post in the other day, um, there was a seminar today that we were opening up to all New Jersey businesses. Here's what mm -hmm. we're finding as entrepreneurial organization. And here's what we're sharing with our members, but let's share it with all the whole entire business community too, um, because we're all in this together and we all need to succeed and, and be economically strong for each other. Right. So um, I, 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 my, one of my posts to my people, my internal WhatsApp post was, look, if, if I had known you guys were out there when I went through my first disaster, I, I'd be in a whole different place than I am right now. Yeah. Um, and I, I wish I had known or I wish I had even thought to look for a group like this. So um, I'm, I feel blessed to be part of it. And it's funny, I can't be as involved as the sharing as, as um, my fellow EORs are doing because they're, they're um, non-essential. So some of them are mm. home and they're figuring all this stuff out, which is great because me being here and having to keep the business running for my supply chain, I'm able to go back and say, okay, um, this expert thought of this. He, he narrowed the whole field down to these points and I'm able to get a condensed version and run with it. So it, it's, it's been a blessing. Thanks for sharing that uh, about EO. I would add to the listener that I belong to the EO Boston chapter and forum has been a great tool. The crux of it is that they you have forum confidentiality. So anything you say in forum cannot be shared with anyone else without you saying it's okay and that 
includes sharing with your spouse. So people treat it very seriously and it does allow a lot of very open communication beyond the fact that a lot of us owners don't have a peer within the company to speak with. It gives you a peer group, but beyond something you might find at Rotary or the other types of business organizations, this is one with the openness and as you said, the vulnerability that it gets to Simon Sinek's sometimes the five whys. Yes. And it can be uncomfortable at times because they are your friends, but they want you to succeed and they're going to call you on something when you may be misrepresenting it to yourself, let's say. Absolutely. And the most important thing is that uncomfortable. You learn that uncomfortable is a good place because if you're yes. uncomfortable, you're growing. And the New Jersey, um, one of our, our, our adages is that we're trailblazers and we're trailblazing together um, mm -hmm. because it, it, there is a thirst for knowledge. And if you, we all know how much time we have um, focused on our business, our families, um, whatever it is, even ourselves a little. Every once in a while, we actually even focus on ourselves. But there's always this learning aspect and you want to read, you want to get to that material. The, the cool thing is somebody else is getting to that. They're telling you it's worth your time. And then they're having a conversation with you about it. And that's one of the greatest things is you can read all the business books you want, but if you can't dissect them with someone, if you can't get an opinion, if you can't get a conversation started around it, um, you know, it's just your interpretation. Absolutely. Have you read Ben Horwitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things? Familiar no, with that? No, I did not read that one. It is written for CEOs, owners, presidents, and he gives the real life examples of his journey. He's in a venture capital firm now, very successful. But the, my big takeaway from the book was the buck stops here. You are going to make hard decisions. Well, one way or another, you're going to make hard decisions. And the points that he brings up in the book are not the ones you read in the typical business books. It's you may have someone within your company who's a good friend, but as you are growing, they may not grow they are no longer able to perform what you need them to be performing, how you need them to be performing in that role. So you must let them go and that's a hard thing, but it's the right thing for the company and for everyone else within the company. Oh, absolutely. Let's switch gears, Ellen. Plastics, I have a couple questions for you. One, I'd like to know what are some of the secrets that we as purchasers of materials, whether it's plastics or metal, should know about the materials distribution business? That's a really, really, really um, many part interesting question. Um, <laughs> so as, as Purchasers, you know, it's funny. Um, 
there's there's requirements for um, a specific amount of of, of of plastic or footage or or square footage to do a job, yet the manufacturers have been bought and then rebought, and they are under these large umbrella headings and have picked two or three um, distributors and that's all that will you know that supply the material mm -hmm. um, and then they've decided that um, this is the amount of material that will sell as as a as a minimum so there are pallet loads of things there are you know determined run amounts of things and unless um, and which I am not, and unless you are um, cash rich again and that you're willing to sink a, a, an, an incredible amount of um, money into an inventory setup, um, it's, it's, it's the distribution business is, um, is, is difficult. Um, when, we were, when we started out, we were considered non-stocking distributors for people like uh, Singer Hyde and uh, St. Cobain. And basically we went off their inventory. So okay. we, we had a, a minimum amount here that we capped because we knew it was a popular size or we knew what customer uh, was in need um, or we were going to use it for a machining job. And then we literally went off our, um, our manufacturer's um, inventory. As, it, as we started to grow um, in the machining end, um, there was a lot of competition in the distribution end. And there were a few people who sunk, uh, I know one who sunk $3 million into inventory, bought up everything, and then sat on it, and then was able to under, undersell everyone. And um, I did not have the infrastructure for um, that inventory or that run. So that was not a, a way I wanted to go. And the opportunities that I was getting, I was competing against very, very large um, uh, acrylic and uh, Lexan manufacturers. And um, I kept getting pulled into um, businesses that weren't my expertise. So I, I wasn't going to supply windows um, or, or uh, building materials to that pallet load level. It just wasn't what was smart and what we knew. I wasn't going to be able to coat bus windows, even though I have a friend uh, in New Jersey Transit who's dying to get me to, um, you know, do be his second supplier for this. But that's not our expertise, and that's not what we do best. So um, it's it's really we had to walk away from a lot of that business. And at the same time, as we were walking away and knowing that the, the machining end was what we were doing best, um, companies were being bought up. Um, A.L. Hyde, who was a uh, distributor of, uh, or a, a manufacturer of Delrin um, and, and Nylons, and they were bought by Ensinger. Um, you know, uh, Parker was being sold. Um, uh, Henkel wound up buying Berquist, and that's a lot of the punching material that we use yeah. for um, an aeronautic thing. Um, but to buy it directly and you need one sheet or two sheets for your customer and their supply, right. you have to buy 23 or 30 to be made. Um, so the, the, the distribution end is um, for me, in my opinion, and I don't know that, you know, anybody can fall into line with this. It's a, it's a richer man's game and it's a bigger man's game. And it's, um, it's, it's not exactly where I can play anymore. 
but we do supply um, in our own way. So as I was explaining before, um, a lot of, of the bigger customers um, were talked into making their supply chain smaller. We're going to decrease our amount of suppliers. We're going to control them better. You're all going to buy in. You're going to be partners, blah, 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 blah. Um, and in doing that, they've, they eliminated raw material suppliers who would only, you know, get them one or two things. Mm-hmm. Um, they eliminated, um, they eliminated uh, toxic suppliers. So people that they had to expedite constantly, they would eliminate those. So in the meantime, we were able to scoop in the middle and say, okay, well, customer service is our thing. So we'll go expedite it for you 17 times. It's fine. As long as you want to pay for our time to do that. And they would rather pay our time than the um, employment time that it costs within their organization. So that's where we were to keep, we, where we kept our, our, our distribution, um, going is, Mm -hmm. is, is taking away the pain, taking away the headache of, um, even trying to find the the material with the certification at the right cost or the right amount. So we, we, we played the game that way. And, and, and we're only at about 15% of our business doing distribution now, but we can, we do it in a more controlled way and we're able to, um, we're able to keep the customer happy, which is what it is. We did get a call, um, just last week, um, because they're trying to make face shields as fast as possible. And somebody right. needed, you know, O O 60 Lexan as, as quick as they could get it, you know, 10,000, uh, pieces was not the Lexan that I on, had on hand. Did I have three people quote it for me to do? Yeah. But, um, it's the same three people that probably could have quoted it direct. So it, it really just depends upon who needs who what the real need is and and then we keep uh we keep ourselves in that arena. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> that that's to me very fascinating on how we see it as the custom part manufacturers the consolidation of the supply base but not necessarily thinking of how it relates to the supply chain and why some of our material suppliers are no longer around and why there's not as much flexibility within the particularly smaller lot procurements. So I appreciate you taking the time there to outline your experience with that. I have a different question for you before we wrap up here. I'm always curious. I saw that you take credit cards on your website. Do you have a lot of customers who use the credit cards? You know, it's funny. We do not. Um, But we take it because there is always um, a university um, who we, who needs some kind of distribution or quick product from somebody mm-hmm. like a St. Cobain, they need something, um, just so, uh, couple, two years ago, we, there was a, there's a specific material that is, is made, um, for an atmospheric, um, type application and the universities, and it, it's probably like $3,000 worth of material, but the universities mm-hmm. uh, were, were doing some test weather or something that they were sending a balloon out into, um, you know, shooting it out of a rocket out in the stratosphere somewhere, and it had to be this material. And somebody, and we just happened to be a distributor for St. Gobain. So for uh, us to go get 
one piece, start up a new customer and get that off to them. It, it's, we're nimble and we're, uh, we're small enough to not have a problem adding that. A larger distributor um, doesn't. And these are the guys, the, the engineers um, in the trenches who need something mm-hmm. quick. They've got a company credit card. So we've found that um, maybe over the 12 months we'll take four credit cards, but the sale was worth it in the end of holding on to that. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried to get rid of it once, but it just, it, it came back. So we, we pay those monthly fees and we keep that, that service going just in case. But we've had a few customers that really, um, instead of cutting a PO and going through all their, their channels, they can quickly do a buy on their own and they've got a limit and, and they appreciate us having it. It seems that the engineers, and I hadn't thought about the universities, but engineers in particular typically have credit cards. I remember we also at Rapid, we had a lot of work from the military and they had maximums. So I maybe shouldn't let this cat out of the bag, but I'm sure it's common knowledge. We might have a $6,000 order and a $2,000 daily limit on a card. So they would instruct us to charge the card three days in a row for $2,000. Exactly. But they, but they needed the parts quickly and it was in actuality, probably a lot more cost effective than running a PO through the system. Absolutely. We did that in desert storm trying to get uh, parts out there, but now, now um, with, you know, rapid prototyping and, and, and 3d printers and taking them with them deployed, uh, we don't see as much of that anymore. Hmm. Well, Ellen, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Your experiences will hopefully help listeners who are struggling today and give them a few specifics, which they can control and focus on. And, after we're through the pandemic, some of the points that you brought up, number one, you should have a plan on whether it's a fire or a flood or the pandemic. Understand, make sure you have insurance, first of all, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the message of communication, even if you're falling apart that to everyone else, everything is fine, I think is super powerful. And then at the same time, having the honesty, having a plan and communicating that, that is what will allow you to break the crisis into bite-sized pieces that is solvable. So that was super helpful. and as well, your experiences with EO and WPO, those are great organizations. If a listener is interested in learning more about entrepreneurs organization, you can go to eonetwork.org and take the next step, get interviewed to see if EO is right for you. What else, Ellen, would you like to share with the audience? You know, um, because we went down this disaster route, um, everybody needs to know that they're stronger than they ever thought they could be, that their trust in themselves um, leads to other people trusting them. 
but in order for anyone to to start that path, um, you've got to be the first vulnerable person. You have to be the one who says, um, I need help. And as a um, as an owner, we forget to ask for help and we are so um, ready to jump in and just do for other people. They are waiting for us to ask. They're waiting for us to trust them. And they're waiting to do a really great job for us, meaning employees and friends and uh-huh. um, associates. And what we need to learn to do is, is be okay with not only asking for help, but receiving help uh-huh. because we're great givers, but we're lousy receivers. And, um, you know, trusting the universe has a plan and you just, if you're not winning, you're learning from what, what you're doing. So just keep learning and keep growing. I really like that. Thank you, Ellen. Where can people find you and LEM Plastics on the internet? Um, they can find me on LinkedIn. They can find LEM at L-E-M and um, we're right here in Fairfield, but our client base is um, all of the contiguous 48 states. So you can reach over. out and, and find us everywhere. Yeah, you find mm-hmm. us a little, a little piece of us everywhere. Super. Well, listeners, it is a tough time for job shops right now. But as Ellen just told us she's lived through a bunch of crises and if you've owned a shop for a while you've lived through the downturns in 2009 the extended recession in 2001 with 9-11 dig deep find your grit and focus on what you can control wishing you the best of luck and keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting have a grateful day Thank you.